Lord, as I just agree with that prayer, that you would send people um, to our family members that are not here, Lord, to minister to them where they are. God, I, I can't help but think of there could be people in other places praying for someone in this community to reach out to their loved ones. And so, Lord, I think of us in that position. Lord, would you equip us so that we can reach the lost here in our community? Lord, is that same prayer may be, be said in another place over our church. Lord, I pray that you would activate us. And Lord, as it was prayed as well, that we want to see uh, you work in our country and in the current climate. Lord, I pray that you would just fill us up with the gospel and that that would propel us outward. Lord, that that would drive us forward to reach out to people and to minister to people. And Lord, we, we don't want to be complacent. We don't want to be standing around when we could be ministering to the lost. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see those who are hurting. And Lord, that we'd be so aware of what's going on in our community. Lord, we're so aware of what's going on in the world, but sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees, Lord. We can, we can be looking at the big picture when we have things here that we can be doing. And so, Lord, give us great balance with this. Lord, we want to be reaching out, but we, we don't want to miss caring for people right here in front of us. And so show us, Lord, how we can do that better and equip us in this time. As we study your word, as we submit ourselves to your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak it to our hearts, that we would understand not only the, the message within the context, but we would understand how this applies to us and how it changes us. So, Lord, use this time. Strengthen your body, your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really weird to not be up here leading worship for you all. So uh, I just got to say it, like, it's such a blessing to have a worship team. As, as a worship pastor for so many years, to have a team that leads without me and leads so well, I love these guys. Like, it's so nice just to be able to, like, be in the crowd and to worship with you guys and to not have to do that. And it also means that I didn't get, like, my, uh, my pre-sermon jitters out, so I may be a little, like, fast-paced this morning, so... Um, blame the worship team. So, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry for this. What's about to happen? Daniel chapter three is what we're going to study this morning. So if you want to turn to Daniel three, we did the first half of, uh, this chapter last week and we're going to finish it this morning. But as you're turning there, uh, something struck me as I was preparing for this message and, and, you know, you can't help but think a lot about Nebuchadnezzar, um, the king of Babylon at this time. As you're studying through these passages, we really get a, a good look at what's going on inside this guy's heart and his mind. And more so than I would say most of the other Gentile leaders that we encounter um, in Old Testament scripture. And it's interesting, as I was studying this, I was reading in, in a couple different places, and, and one commentator just made a statement. He said, proud people do not like to be disobeyed. Proud people don't like to be disobeyed. He's very right. And I started thinking about in the context of even a humble person who's in a position of leadership, when they're disobeyed, they go about it a very different way and just dealing with that and helping people understand that. But where's the point that I see my pride rear itself the most in the position that I'm in is when someone doesn't listen. It's like, well, you should listen. Why? Because I'm in charge. Like, that's why. You know, we, we have that prideful reaction so often. And as we pick up in Daniel 3.19 this morning, we're going to begin by observing Nebuchadnezzar becoming enraged for the third time in three chapters. In three chapters, we see this guy rage out in anger. And, and it's interesting because it's worth noting that a quick study in Scripture reveals a lot about the outbursts of sinful anger. And notice how I qualify that, sinful anger. The outburst of sinful anger is almost always sourced in pride. 
I don't want to say always because that's, that's pretty all-inclusive, but it's almost always sourced in pride. And it's interesting to look at this in context of Scripture. We're warned about the damage that this kind of anger can beget in our lives and in other people's lives. And so we see this, I mean, we're ha- we have a case study of it with Nebuchadnezzar, but as we're talking about it in the scriptural realm, it's why David wrote in Psalm 37, 8, refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. It's only going to bring harm. He taught his son this. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7, 9, after he had done everything that he could possibly do to wreck his life, don't let your spirit rush to be angry for anger abides in the heart of fools. Now, I don't want anyone to raise their hand, but I assume that there are some of us that really struggle with anger, that struggle with frustration, especially right now, especially when there's a lot of tension in our world, when everything's being changed around us. And it's interesting because I was talking with a friend of mine over dinner last night, and he was talking about how many marriages are strained right now. And, and I smiled and I said, well, we all know why. And he's like, COVID? I said, they're locked in the house for three months. Anything that was below the surface is coming to the surface. Anything that was able to be hidden by, I'm going to work to blow off some steam. Well, now you're blowing off your steam at each other, right? And these types of situations really reveal to us what's going on in the heart. And I just want to submit to you, it's a call for us to look into our own hearts and see how much pride is there. How much pride is there and how much exists. We know that God gets angry. So I want to qualify this. We know that God gets angry, but he's always righteously angry. And being righteously angry is not a problem. We know that we can reflect this part of God as as long as we remember Paul's charge in Ephesians 4. You'll remember this. Verses 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. I like verse 27. I don't, you know, don't let the sun go down upon thy wrath if you're a KJV person, right? You know, don't let the sun go down upon thy wrath. It's more holy when it has the thy in there. But if you think about this, he's talking about it in the context of be angry and don't sin. And then he says, and don't give the enemy an opportunity. Make no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The enemy is looking for an opportunity in our current climate to create destruction within our homes. He wants to tear your family apart. He wants to tear you away from each other. He wants to wreck your kids' lives. He wants to wreck your marriages. Don't give him the opportunity. How? How do I not give him the opportunity? Well, first of all, watch less TV. Second of all, that's always a good idea, good start, read more books. But, but here's, here's the second thing we can do. We need to examine our own hearts and see, am I struggling with pride? Is there some of this? And do exactly what David says in that psalm. Get rid of it. Be rid of pride. Put it to death be more like Jesus. The spirit empowers us to do this. You guys, I'm not standing here under any, you know, false pretense saying, and you have the strength to do it if you want it bad enough. No, you're going to need God's help. When it comes to our pride, we're going to need God's help. And if we're lacking victory in this area, we're lacking reliance on the Lord to help us do this. It's likely that Paul's quoting from Psalm 4, 4 and Ephesians 4, that passage I just read to you, be angry and don't sin. Because David says this in that psalm, be angry and don't sin. And then he says this afterwards, reflect in your heart while you're, while on your bed and be silent. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. A pastor once told me that he got himself into a decade's worth of trouble by sending one email. And the reason that happened is because his wife told him, don't send that email. Because he was angry and he wrote it angry. She goes, sleep on it. 
And he didn't. And he sent it right away. And he says, I still regret that decision. And from that point on, every email that I write that is corrective, I sleep on. Because so often, what do we do when we're angry? We react. We're not responding. Responding takes thought and contemplation. We're reacting. And reactions are are awful. Or often, they're awful too. But they're often destructive. Do we stop and reflect in our hearts as to the cause of the anger? Is the source my pride? Am I handling the situation well? And the reason that all this is coming up, you're like, Daniel chapter 3? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect example of a guy who reacts. A guy who gets angry, has way too much power and pride, and reacts. Just does whatever's in front of him. His anger, we're going to see three things very distinctively. His anger affects his mind and reason. Anger affects our reason. We lose a lot of common sense when anger comes into play and a lot of sense in general. In the New Testament, another reason, James tells us to be slow to anger because in James 1.20 he says, human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So for those of us who want to walk in a way that honors Christ, we need to consider our actions, we need to be slow to anger, and we need to remember that when I'm angry and, un- and not in a good way, um, I'm not working God's righteousness. I'm trying to prove something about myself. I'm trying to get something for me. The third thing that I think we're going to see as we address our anger is we often justify our frustration and our anger, and we excuse it because of our circumstances. A lot of times when you talk to somebody, like, you really were upset. Like, yeah, because of this. Or, yeah, but this had happened. And that somehow justifies a wrong reaction. It's not justified in Scripture. Our anger outburst is not justified by what happened. And and trust me, I get this. I've worked in construction. I've worked in, you know, these different things where something just happened, maybe physically hurting us. And you're like, okay, that guy has every right to be screaming everything in the book that I have and things that I've never read before. You know, like just this outburst of, of anger. There's, we have to recognize that this is coming from something. When you soak a sponge in a substance, you're going to find out what it is when? When you squeeze the sponge, right? You're going to find out what it's been soaking in. And, and this is important for us because a lot of times our reactions reveal what we have been soaking in. And so as we deal with these things and as we look at these things, we would really do ourselves a disservice to not see comparisons of ourselves in Nebuchadnezzar as well as much we hope to be compared to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're like, I'm the hero in this story. I would stand tall while everyone else you know, worship this, this golden statue. It's like, yeah, but oftentimes when I'm reading, I'm looking at Nebuchadnezzar's reactions going, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's how I'd be reacting. I'd be really upset. I, you know, I really do think I'm the king of my castle. You guys, choosing humility just diffuses pride's power. Choosing humility diffuses pride's power. James 4, 6 says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility is something that we must choose in light of who God is. And so oftentimes when pride exists in our lives, we're not looking at the Lord. We're looking at ourselves and we're setting ourselves up as idols. We're going to see that in our text this morning as well. Anger makes fools out of all of us, folks. We would do well not only to learn from the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel throughout this book, but we would do well to remember how often we can compare ourselves to Nebuchadnezzar. 
or to the other spirit, the other wise men of this region, because oftentimes they're doing things out of envy and bitterness. And I see pictures of my flesh. I see things that I'm struggling with. And so we need to be honest about those things. So let's pick up in Daniel chapter three in verse 19. We'll continue the story. We've gone all the way up to the three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if they're boys. They're probably men, but you know, maybe they've gone from boys to men. <laughs> Um, anyway, but if, as you think about this, they are, they have stood up when the, all the crowds bowed down. I'm not going to sing anything, I promise. As the crowds have bowed down, they're the three that stood tall. They got accused, they got brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and he's like, listen, I'm going to cut you a break. If you go ahead and bow down, you're not going to die. But he says, what God can save you from my power if you're not going to do this? I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to do it right, and no God's going to stop me. And they're like, listen, even if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down. He's able, but we're not going to do it even if he doesn't. Even if the Lord lets us burn in that furnace, we're better with that than we are with worshiping your idol. Well, Nebuchadnezzar reacts in verse 19. So let's read verses 19 through 23, and we'll finish this chapter together. We'll take it in sections. Verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. Told you, third time in three chapters. And the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent... And the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. It's interesting to me that here in the midst of his rage-filled decision-making process, by the way, notice how I said he reacted, he didn't respond, he reacts. Do you notice that common sense goes out the window? If you really want to do harm to somebody that you're going to throw into a raging fire, would you want that fire to be hotter or would you want it to be cooler? Well, cooler is by far more torturous. If that flame is a slow burn, they're going to die slowly, painfully. If you heat it up as hot as he heats it up, they're going to die rather quickly. They're going to be incinerated fast. So if he wants this to be a worse punishment, he should have cooled it down. But what do we think of? How, how do we react when we're angry, when we're reacting to a situation? Just, 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 you know, no, none of us wants to like get a picture of ourselves or a video sent to ourselves of our spouse like filming us when we're angry, right? We're going to destroy that device. We're going to delete those emails. We're going to do whatever is necessary to prevent that from getting out in the open. A little subtle 2016 reference there, but thank you. Um, but, but here's the thing, you guys. Seven times hotter, by the way, that means as hot as possible. That's an idiom. You're like, how without their measuring going, we need a couple more degrees, boys. Like they, they actually, it just means heat this thing up as hot as it can go. I want that fire raging. Oftentimes in our attempt to do something when we're angry, our anger makes us foolish, irrational, and senseless. Anger makes us foolish, irrational, and senseless. I don't believe... Um, that any of us here want to be reminded of things that we've said when we were angry, things that we've done when we were angry. Um, Most of the time, that's when we're the most ashamed of ourselves is after our anger has subsided and we look back and go, you know, for guys, I have about six months of apologizing to do, you know. 
Um, anger is going to make fools out of all of us. And we need to stop and remember and deal with these things, especially before we get there. Like, we're all pretty calm right now. Maybe some of you guys are like smoldering fire right now, and I don't even know. But like, most of us are pretty calm right now. Are we willing to examine our hearts and really look for that pride issue so that this type of reaction doesn't come out of us? It needs to be dealt with. The second point from verses 20 and 22 is thus. It says that he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to execute this task. And then since the king's command was so urgent in verse 22, or harsh, that word also means harsh, uh, that, that word can be used both directions, the furnace was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men. Oftentimes, our anger is costly for us and others. Oftentimes, it costs us something, not just breaking things, breaking relationships. Breaking friendships apart, it can tear apart marriages. It's costly for the king in a very real way as he loses some of his best soldiers to this rage. He lost some of his best men because he heated this furnace up so much. And it was costly for them because they lost their lives because of his irrational anger. Not only did he lose men that served him and served him well, his best soldiers, but they also lost their lives on on his account. And it's a perfect picture for us that it's not just costly for us, but it's costly for others. It hurts other people when our anger gets out of control. It could have been uh, quite costly for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but God's going to step in. And possibly quite literally. We don't have to live in fear of angry people. Have you ever dealt with an angry person? I think most hands in the room would go up. We don't have to fear angry people. And we certainly don't want to become like that. We honor God regardless, regardless of knowing the outcome. He's going to sustain us or translate us. It's just like Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 when he says, don't fear men. He's like, all they can do is kill your body. Don't worry about that. He goes, fear the one who can throw body and soul into hell. Honor God in, in our lives. Honor him with your choices. Honor him with the things that you're doing and recognize that he will either sustain us or translate us, meaning transfer us into his kingdom. The worst that people can do is kill you. And I know that seems pretty bad. And you're like, but that's my life we're talking about. I know. There are some things that are worth dying for. Jesus believed that to be true. And that's how we model Christ-like heart is when we are willing to lay our lives down to honor God to look like Christ, to be like Christ. And something to note, back in verse 7 of this chapter, the Aramaic word nephal is used uh, to translate the word fell. And the reason I want to point this out, is just a fun little Bible thing. Nephal, when you see it used in, in verse 7, is speaking of the people falling down and worshiping the statue. Okay, it was an act of worship in verse 7. Here, the same word is used as these men fell into the furnace. Nephal is used again as they fell into the, the furnace. Now, that makes sense. And I'm not like revealing some secret Bible code. Like, see what this actually means is that we have 42 weeks until. No, that's not what we're going to. That's not what it means at all. It, it's a very logical thing to see this word used in both contexts. Why I'm pointing it out is that in one sense, these people are worshiping an idol as they fall down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are falling into a furnace of fire in an act of worship. They are worshiping God through their actions as they are falling into the fire. Same word usage. And I want us to think about it in this way. The descriptive word is the same, but one group of people represent conformity as they fall, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego represent a living sacrifice. 
who are we called to be? We're told not to conform to the pattern of this world, Romans 12.2 says. Instead, it says that we should be living sacrifices in Romans 12.1, the verse prior. Very clearly called to lay our lives down for the sake of Jesus, not to conform to what the world's doing. And here we see these acts of worship done in complete opposite ways within the same chapter. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in an act of worship to honor God and not bow down to a false idol are thrown into this furnace. Now, something about the furnace that's interesting, it'd likely be built on a small hill or some kind of a mound with openings on the top and the sides. So these three men, as they fall into the furnace, they fall into the top. They're thrown in from the top. But this is how, when you read about Nebuchadnezzar in a second, looking through the sides, he's looking through the sides because there was holes around it. He would be able to see into the furnace. So he's not like up there like, you know, trying to look down, you're like, well, if the soldiers died. Yeah, he's at safe distance, but he can see in from the sides. Okay, most smelting, ancient smelting devices would work like this. So what does he see when he looks inside this fiery furnace? Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look. I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Interesting. Not at all what you would expect to see when you look into your furnace. These dudes just cruising in there, like not even like sitting down. You know, I, I always in my head, I, you know, I picture them sitting there playing cards, you know, like, well, I don't know how long we're going to be in here, but I got, you know, we got time. What a shocking sight this must have been. I mean, we, we've read this so many times, most of us, we, we've heard this story told. Have you really thought about what it would be like to be Nebuchadnezzar looking into this furnace and seeing people walking around and one more than you threw in? You know, did Harold fall in? And like, no, 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 seriously, like that one looks different than the others. Something about this fourth person is distinguished from the others. It's, it, there's something supernatural about it. Now, to watch the soldiers die from the heat and then expect to see nothing within the furnace and then yet before your eyes, here's four people. What are we dealing with here? What's going on here? This is a moment of realization. Uh-oh, right? I thought I had all the power. I thought I had all the tools. And now I'm standing here with no power, with no ability to stop what's happening inside this furnace. If I entered in, I would die. This is something that's outside of my reach. This is something that's out, outside of my ability. And who are we talking about here with these guys walking around in the fire? Is it an angel? Is it Jesus? It's interesting because I've heard this taught emphatically that it was Christ, but I think our hearts want to say it's Jesus because as, as people who love Jesus, we're just looking for Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament, and that's okay. Like, that's a good thing. But what's interesting about this, the only descriptive that we have of this fourth person is Nebuchadnezzar. It's his description, and it's vague. It's vague. You go, son of God. I mean, that's what Jesus, yeah, that's true. That is his designation, but you're hearing it from a pagan ruler. What does son of the gods mean to a pagan ruler like Nebuchadnezzar? He's saying this is some kind of a being that's not human. This is a being that is spiritual. So he's seeing something. Could it be Jesus? Totally. Could it be an angel? Totally. Like, and, and we really don't have a ton of clarity on that, but it's not necessarily a horrible thing to realize that we don't have a lot of description because the fourth man in the fire reveals one thing for certain to us. Were they alone in the furnace? No. 
You're like, well, they had each other. I mean the three of them. Were they alone in the furnace? No. Who was with them? Somebody the Lord sent. He did not allow them to be alone in that situation. God saw to it that they had help and encouragement, and not just because Jesus or an angel was present with them, but look at the details of the text in verses 25 and 27. This is fascinating. Did the, the fire affect them or anything they were wearing? We can answer this one. This is fun. Did, did the fire affect them or anything they were wearing? Are you sure? Who? Yes. Where were their bonds? They were thrown bound into that fire. They're walking around. Notice the descriptive. I'll read it here. I'll use my authorized version. I'm just kidding. Here it says this. He sees them walking around and he says it as a descriptive. Look, I see four men, verse 25, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. They're not tied. Two options. One, the fire consumed the bonds. Two, this is a fun one. The Lord took their bonds off them. The fourth person in the fire came in unbound and could have unbound them. Which happened? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I wasn't there. That'd be really cool. You know, you guys listen to Adventures in Odyssey. Maybe I can go back in the Imagination Station. I'll pop in there and find out what's going on. But, But here's the thing. Yeah, throwback. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Either way, their bonds are loose. They are free inside of this. They're in a situation that they should be dying in, that they should be destroyed by, and God has given them freedom in that situation. This is powerful stuff. When we entrust ourselves to God and we worship him alone, he is with us and we are offering up our lives so he can work supernaturally or through natural means. Church, we must be unafraid to be thrown into the fire. We must be unafraid of this. The fear that drives us to step back from, from being persecuted or going through hard times or, you know, like right now I feel like I'm living in a fiery furnace. You know, like my life is just, is just so tormenting and all these things. You understand that God can free you and use you in that furnace, in that situation. And I don't want to spiritualize too much of this because this is a real physical thing that's happening. But you understand that the lesson is still true. That if you are honoring the Lord with your decisions, you can go into that fire and have the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did you remember last week we talked about this? When they said, if the Lord does not save us, should he not do this? We're still not going to bow. They weren't sure. There was uncertainty in the language, in the original language. They didn't know if God was going to save them or not. We cannot hesitate to go in regardless because we choose to honor the Lord first and foremost. Jesus told us, Matthew 28, 20, that he'd be with us to the end. And after giving the great commission, he says, teach these new disciples that you're going to reach for my sake to obey all the commands that I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not going to leave you. What do we have to fear? What is there to be afraid of if we believe that in reality? If we believe that to be true, if we take that as truth, because it is truth. As one of my favorite worship songs says, he's with us in the fire and the flood. I like that terminology because you think about the flood, Genesis chapter six, right? Six and seven and how all that plays out. And you're like, okay, the you know, world got real bad. Noah builds the ark. Genesis seven, the great flood comes. And you're like, he's with us in the flood, preserving us in a time where 
all hope is lost outside of being under his protective hand. And then you think about the fire of Daniel chapter 3. He preserves us in both places. He saves us from our situations. And here's the thing. It's what I said before. He's either going to sustain us or translate us. What's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst case scenario? You go into the fire and the Lord sustains you or you die and you're in his presence. Believers, this transcends our thought process. It makes us think like God thinks instead of thinking like people think. It changes our perspective. This should shape our week, not just our Sunday morning. It should shape how we see people and how we see the community around us when we see them through the Lord's eyes and we see that he can do this as we submit to him. He is glorified in our obedience. I'll say that again. God is glorified in our obedience. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar is pretty blown away. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. His opinions changed. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. I would insert for myself, just as a reminder, they weren't bound anymore. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Whoa, doggy. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You know, it's interesting. As I read that verse, you know, aloud, verse 29, it's funny. You can still see the pagan nature of Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a reformed man yet. He's still got some issues. We're going to talk about that in a second. But it's interesting because you look and be like, see, that's what should happen to people who don't believe like we do. Wrong. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Those are our marching orders. Far better, right? This is spoken by a pagan king who threatens people with death all the time. Give me what I want or I'll tear you limb from limb. It's like, well, I haven't heard that in 10 minutes. You know, you wouldn't take that flippantly though because he would do it. When God's people walk in obedience to him, regardless of the cost, he will receive the glory. When we do it regardless of the cost, how often are we effective in ministering to people or glorifying God from a position of comfort? It's an interesting question. We could have a discussion about it. Not here, but we could, we could have a discussion about it. Because when you think about how often I glorify God from a position of comfort, sure, I think so. You can. But if comfort allows us a small way to glorify God in the day-to-day, then suffering is a megaphone. C.S. Lewis said, I'm going to butcher this quote, but C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said that God speaks to us uh, through our comfort, through our, through our, our times of comfort, but he says he shouts to us in our pain. There is such a louder declaration of God's glory when we go through trials and suffering 
with the attitude of honoring him. And it's interesting because I think that a lot of times we, we look at ourselves as the church, especially right now, and we'd like to think that we're really suffering for the name. We're not. We are privileged. We are pri- privileged people. Um, we are not suffering much for the name, if at all. If you want to see people who are suffering for the name, go to Iran. Go to Sudan. Go to places in the world where being a Christian gets you and your family killed, tortured, where children um, have to watch parts of their parents kicked around in the streets. This is happening right now, and we want to think that we're being persecuted because we're being told to wear masks when we walk into Red Robin. Oh, the humanity. Christian church, those days could be coming. Those days could be coming. Uh, The whole climate could change in our nation very quickly. I don't know if you guys feel it. I, you know, like I, I hear like these words, like there's been a disturbance in the fort. You know, like there's like there, there's been a rumbling. Like things could change. Things could change for us very quickly here. And are we ready to be the church that's willing to do whatever it takes to honor Christ in those situations? When God's people walk in obedience to Him, regardless of the cost, He will receive the glory. Twice now, God has revealed His power to Nebuchadnezzar. Twice now, in these three chapters, He's revealed Himself powerfully. To Nebuchadnezzar. However, even though he views the God of Israel as the most high God over all his other gods, he has still not promoted the Lord to his proper place. There's a God that Nebuchadnezzar holds in higher esteem, one that he worships above all else. Do you know what it is? Self. Self. You know how I talked about the comparisons that I see in myself and Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning? I've just been kind of bringing that up over and over again. Do you know what I see in our country? Do you know who I see as worship more than anyone else? It's self. People don't bow down to idols. They bow down to self. They worship self. Anything that makes self happy. Self is hungry. Self doesn't feel pretty enough. Self needs admiration, encouragement, all these different ways. You're like, is it bad to encourage each other? No, it's good to encourage each other. But if that's what you live for, that's an idol. That's idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar has himself on the throne. All these other gods are there to serve him. He's like, oh yeah, your God's the God, the most high God of the gods. But in chapter four, what's Nebuchadnezzar going to do? As I walked on the roof of my house, I declared, right? Look at this wonderful kingdom of my majestic power that I've created with my own ability, right? He worships himself. God's going to get a hold of him. Don't worry. But even as these men walk unsinged out of the furnace and are rewarded for their allegiance to God, the king has recognized God's power but still worships himself. And this is something very, very interesting to me. God is not interested in your recognition of his power. He's not interested in you standing there going, wow, God, you are powerful. That's impressive stuff. Good job. Right? God is not interested in your recognition of his power. He is interested in your submission to him. He's interested in your obedience to him. You realize that you can recognize power, you can recognize ability, and not belong to him. It's some of the most fearful words written in the New Testament when Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things, and you say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And you're like, how is that going to happen? People who recognize power but did not submit themselves to God. 
They recognized the power. They were even able to wield it in some way as God got his work done, but they were unable to have this relationship with him. They didn't submit themselves to him in obedience. Just recognizing that the God of the Bible is the one true God to be worshipped does not make you a believer. You're just admitting that there's power there. I had a kid once who sat down with me and was telling me all these things he knew about the Bible. And I said, so why are you struggling in this way in your life? He's like, well, what I really need to do is not deal with that, that personal struggle, that sin issue. What I really need to do is know more about the Bible over here. And I said, why? He's like, because I want to be able to prove to my friends that God's real. And I said, without dealing with your sin? He's like, well, yeah, I mean, I figured that'll just kind of work. So I said, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. Here, here's the problem. You recognize truth when you see it. That doesn't mean that you believe it. You just want to wield it like a weapon. You see something that has power and you want to wield it like a weapon rather than submit to God's ability to heal through it, to cleanse through it, to use that as a device that's rightly handled. As Paul would tell Timothy, you need to rightly be able to divide the word and to be able to use his word to help people, not be like this reckless person with a sword in the middle of a crowd just swinging for all you got. You know, as I taught that passage to young guys, I said, what is the most dangerous thing to do to someone who is pretty much out of their mind? Give them a weapon in a large crowd and just let them go at it, you know? Hey, Timothy, don't worry about learning how to use the Bible. Just here's a sword, run into the crowd and start swinging like crazy. You'll do some good. None of us believe that. You need to be able to rightly divide. Use it with skill. And so when we use something with skill, we recognize that's not about just knowing what truth is. It's about submitting to the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the, and the life. I am the truth. If you want to know truth, you have to get personal with it. And you have to let it dissect your life first. Hence the reason Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that we have to have the beam removed from our eye before we can help our neighbor with the speck that's in his. We have to let these things get heart deep. God is not interested in my recognition of his power. He wants me to humbly submit to him because he loves me and wants to work in me and fulfill my life and use me in ways like he did use Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this culture at this time. As a church, we have a very specific commissioning and calling to make disciples to reach out to people. We cannot do that from a position of hypocrisy. we got to get real. These issues go heart deep. The amazing part is that God not only honors Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this situation, but that he longs for Nebuchadnezzar. Did you ever think about that? God longs for Nebuchadnezzar. He's not done with them. Could he very easily be like, all right, I'm done with you? For sure. But he's not done with them. Do you recognize that kind of pursuant grace in your own life that God has continued to give you opportunity after opportunity? Boys, we look back, never forget that, that he has given us so much grace and that he longs to use us and bring us into a closer walk with him because he loves us and wants our lives fulfilled. Well, chapter 4, as we transition next week, will take us into this amazing chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's life. It's super inspiring, super encouraging, and um, we'll learn much there. As we close the book on chapter 3, I really couldn't think of a better way to bring it to a close than um, to read to you from an old hymn, as I did last week, just one verse. 
When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This is the work of the Lord in our lives. Don't run away from the difficulty. Call out to God in the midst of it. Let him use you in that place. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the struggle. He's not leaving us alone. He's not abandoning us. Entrust yourself to him, and we just might see the Lord do some pretty awesome supernatural things in our culture in our time. That's my prayer. I want to see the Lord work in powerful ways like he did in this time, and our God has not changed. But we need to be a people that knows him intimately from the heart, dealing with our pride, not walking in hypocrisy. Let's deal with this stuff. Part of that is being in community, church. It's being close to each other. It's fellowshipping together. It's sharing our lives with each other because it's really hard to hide those kind of things from each other, and God will use us in each other's lives, as it says in Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens, to help carry each other through really difficult times. We need that. I love that the Lord is so faithful to bring that dross to the surface. It's hard to see, isn't it? Isn't it hard to see your junk come right up to the surface? So many things have been beneath the surface and our circumstances that we have been complaining about, myself included, over the last year, we've been complaining about how awkward and difficult and frustrating it's been. God's just using this as a furnace to bring that dross forward. He wants to refine us. Don't resist it. Lean into him. We'll do it together as a church. Amen? Lord, thank you for these guys, and thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as your spirit gives us the ability to process what's been said, Lord, that we wouldn't hold on to anything, God, that, that's from me, that has come from me, but, Lord, that everything that we have received from your Holy Spirit would settle in and take root in the heart. Lord, oftentimes I feel like there's this desire that you want to communicate to us in a very individual way as we gather as your church. And Lord, you do speak to us collectively, but God, I pray for the individuals here this morning that need to hear from you directly, that their ears would be open. Lord, there are some of us, and myself included, that you have a very specific thing to say to through this passage. And Lord, for me, that was humility. It seems to be often that you speak to my heart about humility, that you remind me, Jesus, that you were the most humble and meek person that ever walked this earth. You had more reason to be worshipped than anybody else, and yet you allowed finite human beings to accuse you, to bind you, to crucify you, and to kill you. And Lord, you did that all so that God would be glorified, so that your Father would be honored through your obedience, and that many of us renegade punks will be brought into the kingdom. Lord, I pray for any here who know someone, Lord, that they are burdened for, that doesn't know you, that's lost and confused and struggling. I pray for anyone here this morning that's lost and confused, maybe without you. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes. Holy Spirit, open their eyes. Help them to see you. Let them see that you are the answer. Jesus, that you can heal their broken heart. 
Lord, that by putting their faith and their trust in you, you can make them a new creation. Lord, that they can enter the most important relationship of their life, and that's a relationship with you, Jesus. Lord, in a way that I can hardly even comprehend, speak to those individual hearts. Lord, be honored as we worship.